Hello and welcome back to another episode of Integrating Self. My name is Kevin. Today we are joined by a recently doctored um, Elizabeth Poyer or Liz for short, Dr. Liz. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We're excited to hear your story and you recently got, I don't know if it's promoted or transferred, I don't know what the right word is, but you're now one of the pastors at Berman University up near Edmonton, Alberta, which is really awesome. Yeah. So um, I'm really... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just saying, I'm really um, curious about how did you get to that point? You know, getting to a university church is often seen as a pinnacle spot. So, oh. what, well, at least that's what I've been told. Or oh, you know. Okay. Yeah. That's a, okay. That's good to know. Um, yeah, I've been a, a pastor for about 20 years. Um, most of that or all of it is basically in Ontario. Ontario Conference took a chance on me and sent me to seminary eventually. And I was pastoring in Toronto, in Ottawa, a chaplain for a little bit at Crawford Adventist Academy. And then recently, uh, we were, my husband and I, who's also a pastor, we were the directors for family, women, men's, um, and singles ministry at the conference office. And this opportunity came for us to be a part of the pastoral team at College Heights um, by Bourbon University. And it was not an easy decision because, you know, we have family in Toronto and our kids were really settled in their schools. But we prayed like hard about it and we took a long time to really think about it. Um, and we both understand that not every church wants a husband and wife to be a part of the pastoral team. Uh, we know that that's like a different thing and not everybody wants to go there and that's totally reasonable but they offered us these roles and we said yes and so we've been out here september and we're still learning tons of stuff and meeting all the people and the dynamics between the different schools because it's berman university it's parkview adventist academy and then there's college heights christian school so there's three schools that surround our church so totally different dynamics. And Alberta is different. Alberta is not Ontario. Thank goodness, in brackets. Um, <laughs> oh, I think every Canadian will admit that Alberta is a little different. Yeah. <laughs> I totally appreciate the sunshine here. It's like a gift from God, the, sun, the amount of sunshine we get in Alberta. So leading up to this as a, as a you know, little girl Liz, when when was the moment when you thought, hmm, pastoring, being involved in the church in this way, when did that light bulb moment go off for you? Uh, not until I finished university. I went to public university in Kitchener. I went to Laurier with the hopes of becoming a lawyer. Oh, wow. And um, after I finished my undergrad, I saw my dad gave me uh, one of those missionary, I don't know, booklets that showed all of the different opportunities for missionaries, I guess, student missionaries. And I saw one for Australia. And I was like, 
I'm going to apply to Australia. And I did and never heard back from anything. So I was getting ready to like study for my LSATs. And then during the summer, uh, this guy called me from New Zealand and he was like, do you want to come to New Zealand? It's like, absolutely. I'm going to go to New Zealand. <laughs> so I went to New Zealand and it literally changed the trajectory of my life. I thought I was going to be um, like a volunteer pastor at one of the churches. And it was at the Papatoetoe Adventist Church in Auckland. And it changed my life. I couldn't believe. I was like, is this like a job? Like I get to be with, <laughs> I get to be with young people and I get to talk about like God and we get to learn together. How is this real? And it really changed. And so after a year... Um, after my term was up, I went back home with the the thought that God was really calling me to ministry, which was like really unheard of because at the time in Ontario, there weren't any other women pastors. I knew one. Um, her name was Eileen Dahl. Um, she's no longer with us, but she mentored me. She had gone to an evangelical seminary in Toronto, and she was a chaplain at one of the hospitals. And she met me and she was like, listen, if you want to be like employed by the Adventist church, then you're going to have to go to Andrews to like get some, your master's of divinity or something. Because if you stay in school in Toronto, it's going to be harder for you to be employed. Um, and I was like, oh, Okay. So I don't know why I did this or how I even had the guts to do this, but I went to the Ontario conference office and I asked them to send me to seminary. Like I booked an appointment with the president and the other individuals in charge. And I asked them to send me to seminary <laughs> and I didn't have an undergrad in theology. And they're like, um, no, like that's not the way we do things here. Usually, you know, you get your, undergrad in theology, you get hired, you work for a couple of years, and then maybe we send you to get your MDiv in seminary, but we don't even know like who you are. <laughs> um, and, you know, to be honest, that crushed me a little bit. Um, I felt like, oh my goodness, maybe I didn't hear right from God. Like, was I like imagining everything? And that's, those like six months, six months after coming home from New Zealand, it felt really weird. I felt all out of sorts, dysregulated, didn't know who I was, what I was supposed to be doing. And so, yeah, I just worked a bunch of um, temp jobs and I found this really awesome job with Bose Electronics. And I started working there and I was like, you know what, I'm going to apply to this evangelical seminary in Toronto called Tyndale. And I'm just going to do my own Masters of Divinity because these guys are not trying to send me to Andrews. And so I started my MDiv in Toronto while I was working. And after two years, the Ontario Conference came back to me and was like, hey, we want to send you to seminary. I'm like, what? How? <laughs> what is happening? Um. And to make a really long story short, they sent me to seminary, which was wild. Um, and so I went there and did my MDiv. And at the end of it, I actually got hired 
by the Ontario Conference, and I started to pastor at the Willowdale Church, which was my home church. Wild. Wow, that, that That is quite, you went out on your own to start at uh, Tyndale, which I've heard lots of. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I get, do you know why they changed their mind? Did you feel like maybe I, you convinced them enough with your... No, because it was two years later. <laughs> uh, I And I mean, I was volunteering at church and things like that, but... I think it's a miracle, to be honest with you. Um, and I also think it had to do with God's timing. Um, if I had gone two years earlier, I would not have met my husband. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Who is the best person in the world? Of course. Yeah. He's the best. So as you mentioned, you didn't know any female pastors. So yeah. what was the- what was that like? You know, usually you have a, people have a mentor or a picture of, okay, maybe this is what it's like. <laughs> yeah. So what was your, what was your picture of what would it be like? You had New Zealand. Yeah. But how did you kind of reality meet expectations being a Filipino woman in the middle of all that? I, I had, I was supremely naive, to be honest with you. I did not know what seminary would be like. I was so nervous all the time because I didn't have this theology background. And so there would be people like talking about all this stuff in class. And I'd be like, what? What are you? I have no idea what you guys are talking about. So that was a huge shock for me. Like it took me a long time just to get settled. Um, and then when I was actually working as a pastor, I didn't have that background that a lot of the other pastors had of like working for a couple of years. This was like my very first, first, first paid job. And yeah, it was different. Um, and I'm sure I've made so many mistakes along the way. Um, there were no other Filipinos. At the time, there were no other women. Uh, there were Bible workers that were women who were beautiful people. Um, but there were no other women. Um, my mentor, like I said, Eileen, she really helped when I was trying to get into seminary. Um, I didn't get to talk to her as much afterwards because it had been, you know, three or four years after. So I didn't have a mentor. Um, my senior pastor was awesome uh, as someone to kind of lead and direct in the ministry, but I didn't have a a woman mentor. Yeah. Because one of the things um, that has been spoken on a few past episodes and just one of the areas that I've often wondered about that your um, experience has brought up, what is your feeling on what you do bring? Because you have um, your legal training, you have some theological <laughs> training from another seminary, mm-hmm. right? You're not quote unquote, the pure Adventist training trainee, you know, your undergrad at, at Adventist University, your divinity at right. right, you have all this extra stuff. So how has that integration been with, you know, how has legal training incorporated <laughs> to your practice? Or um, is there something you learned at Tyndale that you didn't learn at Andrews? I think um so I mean I didn't get legal training. It was like a political science degree. But what being in a public university has taught me and being in an evangelical seminary has taught me is that there is going to be a world of different opinions. 
And sometimes, you know, Adventists like to position themselves as like the only way. Um, and there can be times when we are spiritually arrogant, right? So being in those different spaces has taught me like there are other people who love Jesus who aren't Adventist. And there are other people who think this way and have a deep relationship with God. So yeah, it it gave me a really beautiful perspective on the world. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I've noticed too, when my family and I talk about this, we always realize the pastors we like the most or the most meaningful to us were the ones that didn't have a theology degree until later in life or became Christian later in life. Like there seems to be that extra piece mm-hmm. that allowed for the openness, that allowed for um a bit wider perspective or additive um what's the word I'm looking for? Characteristics or even abilities. Like my home pastor was a non-Christian business guy. Mm-hmm. And he became a Christian and a pastor. And so the way the church functioned was different than somebody that had never those experiences so the kind of like you said the the monolithic the one size fits all Mm -hmm. that that's something i've always been curious about with people that do other programs or go to other universities i know i've been told i'll never be an adventist pastor because i didn't graduate from adventist university (laughs) i've just been straight up told that that's that's changed a lot Um, cause I have seen, you know, educators and, um, maybe individuals who volunteered a lot at the church be given those, those roles as pastors without like official training. Yeah. And another part of the, the, your, your training that was quite inspiring is, as mentioned, you just finished your doctorate. Yeah. And that was something that seem to express a very big part. You had recently a article in the Canadian Messenger magazine about neurodiversity, which is something as a special ed teacher, I've always wondered, you know, how do we diversify church? Because Mm -hmm. it is, you know, not just only kind of one, not only is it just one size fits all for leadership, but church sometimes is very, you sit down, you have your music, oh, yeah. announcements, special no yes. children's story, then special music, and then sermon. Yeah, we aren't hitting the way people, you know, take in information or learn. We're only doing it one way, right? Um, so my dissertation is about how families living with autism can be included in our churches and how they can how churches can be spaces of belonging for families. Um I mean, when you're doing a dissertation, you have to keep it super narrow. So I had to keep it to like children, but I do believe the inclusion of all individuals who are neurodiverse is so important to the body of Christ. Like we can't ignore what the Bible says about like every single one of us has been gifted a specific role and gift and we all matter in that body of christ and so i do believe there are forgotten parts in the body of christ and we need to we need to amend that because 
Um, our son who lives with autism, when we he was diagnosed, um, we were pastoring in Ottawa, Ontario, and there were other families there who also had children living with autism. And it was just so laborious to attend church. It it she I just remember the one of the moms saying, it's just not worth it. Like to get the kids packed up and then maybe they're, you know, agitated or not feeling it and then get them in the car and then you get there and maybe your child needs to vocalize or move around and then people are looking at you and you think that, oh, your kids are so undisciplined or they tell you to be quiet. We don't need that. It's it's too much. We make church too much of a chore sometimes for neurodiverse individuals. Um, so I did focus on that with my dissertation um, and the article, um, Angelica Sanchez wrote it just about our family and the, the experience that we had as a young family. Um, our son has changed so much from his first time being diagnosed at age three. Um, and I know that's not everybody's reality. Sometimes our kids, they don't change. They stay nonverbal. Sometimes our kids, um, you know, daily tasks are really difficult for as long as they are alive into adulthood. Um, but our experience, um, it was quite difficult at the beginning. And I, I believe it is a miracle that our son has been able to kind of grow in his independence. Um, yeah, it's it's been an awesome thing to witness. Yeah. So you're you're bringing in a theme of challenging or showing the difficulties and just this very straightforward approach to church. And mm -hmm. I love how you said the forgotten parts Yeah, because we, we so easily construct that women can't be pastors or shouldn't be mm -hmm. right. Or, you know, they get, they don't get ordained. They get uh, that other word commissions. And like, yeah. we, we have all these roundabout ways or like, you're right, mm -hmm. especially with people that operate and have different ways of thinking, interacting with the world, yeah. like ADHD or autism. Yes. yes. Right. And I think those are big themes that take more effort, but I wonder if they're almost related because if you're not trained to mm -hmm. work with special needs as a pastor or church leader, that's not something you can address. But if we don't allow pastors and leaders to do more than just the straight of the mill training, mm -hmm. then there's something that they can't feed back into. Right. There <laughs> so is so much available to yeah. us as church leaders, volunteers, pastors, I mean, educators, they obviously have access all the time. Um, but there's so much for us, even just the smallest tweaks in our service, in the way we greet people and welcome people, how we see people, it makes a huge difference in the way someone experiences Jesus at church. Yeah. And I, I wonder, um, have you come across the bad theology of, oh, you must have sinned for your kid to be autistic? <laughs> um. People say really interesting things when you have a child living with autism. Um, and some of it, like it makes you really upset 
Because like, how can you think that way? And when I was doing some research, there is that, you know, they've got these different disability theologies. And one of them is that, like, you must have done something, like reading the Bible of the man who was blind and yeah. they're like, oh, his parents must have sinned, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I don't um, like it when people tend to view neurodiversity as a sin or somebody living with ADHD that needs to be fixed or, oh, you have autism. Oh, poor you. Like you've got this disease or something. Um, I really want, you know, churches and our volunteers and our pastors to see neurodiversity as a gift. It's like a, a different way of thinking. It's not a disease. It is not this negative yucky thing. Um, and I think changing that perspective is important for us to move our churches toward growing spaces of inclusion and belonging. Um, I don't want people to think, oh, yes, we are changing the way we do this to accept you. That's not how it works. It's ministry with families living with autism, not just we're doing all of this for you. Yeah, because we're missing out on the gifts that neurodiverse individuals have to contribute. Well, not only are we missing out on the gifts of a whole group of people, but I would think we are missing out on the full call of being a church. 100%. As soon as we put up an excuse or as soon as we, we put up a reason that you're not fully integrated into the body of Christ, I think that's a red flag (laughs) for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a bit of, there's a challenge with that too, because like you said, we either think something's gone wrong, you have a disease, you're not quite well, or it's inconvenient, you know, um, having yeah. the autistic kid scream behind you. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, part of the challenge of this idea of community beyond, right, where there it's female leadership. Like, it, it seems like we have to break open our church in a way. I think it seems like that's what you've been experiencing and working towards? Um, uh, As part of the work I was doing, I interviewed parents who have children living with autism. I'll never forget this one parent said to me, I asked them, what do you want your church to know? And she said, I want them to know that this is our church too. Just because you are neurotypical doesn't mean you deserve to be the one sitting comfortably in the sanctuary. Doesn't mean we we um, program all of the ministry initiatives to fit your needs and your comfortability. This is supposed to be a church for all of us. And sometimes that means having space and having the safety for someone to vocalize or to not be judgmental when somebody needs to lie down on the floor or on the pew, whatever it is. Yeah, I like your comments of we need to break the church open. And I think because we've been doing things a certain way for many, many decades, it's so difficult for us to change the mindset of what church should look like, what church leadership should look like, what programming should look like, all of those things. And then sometimes when people do push the envelope, they either get labeled as, you know, groundbreaking or Um, you know, an offshoot or like you guys, what you're doing over there is 
nonsense or sacrilegious. Yeah. Or does it fit to how we've done this for the last 20, 30, 40 years? Yep. I mean, anything outside of that can be very scary for people. And I understand that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's part of it too, is if we help people understand to overcome the fear, which sometimes it seems like there's a double layer that we don't, we either are fearful or we're prideful that it needs to be this way. Or we're like, Mm -hmm. you're over there. Like there's so many mind games because I, I used to be a youth worker and one of the kids I worked with for um, almost two years, nonverbal autistic teen. And like you said, you know, his goal was to be able to change himself. And his goal was to be able to use the washroom and really awesome kid once you got to know him. Mm-hmm. But it's off putting, right? He, he, he has a whole bunch of noises that, you know, once yep. you work with him for a couple months, you know, to decipher. Um, when it was raining out, we would take him and walk in um, the indoor track or watch hockey games because he liked people. Mm-hmm. But he would, he would reach out and kind of pat them on the head as you walked by. And of course, people are like stunned and freaked out. Yeah, and they see, right. yeah. as soon as they see him, they're like, oh, and like, oh, he's just blessing you. Like that was our inside joke. Mm-hmm. But, but that reaction to something that's different, I think yeah. it can be so uh, blockative, if that's a word, to people entering <laughs> the church. It's true. Anything that's different is uncomfortable for us because we don't know. Yeah. And education is a huge piece of how to change the perspective on neurodiverse individuals because we don't know. So we act out or we judge. Education, huge. What I also wonder too, um, kind of in a uh, way of thinking of church engagement, how much you put in, how much you get out. Because this is, you know, these are good ideas, but for the average church person who's worked 40 hours, I mm-hmm. wonder what the mindset is, or if we're ready for this in that, you know, church Sabbath resting. I don't want to learn anymore. So I wonder if there's almost kind of a wall in that way that, you know, you come to church to rest, to be rejuvenated. And here we're throwing you more learning about other people. Like, I wonder too how we would incorporate learning on top of people already doing full time work. Um, love that question because I know that people come tired right? Yeah. Um, And there are so many ways to educate individuals. It doesn't have to be like this long two-hour workshop. It can be the pastor talking about, um, you know, Mephibosheth and David and how David went out to look for those he could bless. And he had to look for people who were missing. And there are certain people groups missing from our congregations, 100%. Um, it could be small micro learning um, opportunities. You know, you put something in the pew, a pew card. You run a commercial during announcement time. You can spotlight a church, uh, a family at the church, and like, hi, my name is so and so, and this is my daughter. And you know, my daughter does things a little differently. I think there are so many ways to be creative. Um, one of the churches in Oshawa who began a neurodiverse ministry out of the work that we were doing uh, has these little commercials during announcement time. And they have um, social groups for people with neurodiversity. And it doesn't have to be because you come to this church, you can come. It's like open to the entire community. Unfortunately, 
social services for most children living with autism are hard to find or very expensive. And so having places where they can be themselves, be safe and make friends, which can often be a challenge, is a huge thing for families. Like that's where we can, as a church, fill in those gaps, especially where social services leave off. And special needs, um, in the bigness that it is, one of the key parts of it that I know was drilled into me as a special needs teacher and then I've experienced, is kids with special needs do better when they're incorporated into the group or in my case, my case the classroom. And yeah. not only that, the regular quote-unquote kids do better when they have special needs students in their class because they learn mm-hmm. empathy, right? Yeah. The history of special needs it has been mostly separation. You know, you yes. go to the special classroom down the hall or the special room over here, but the integration is healthier not only for the special needs person but for the community, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's empathy for everyone. It's big um, community thinking for everyone. So your yes. work would not only support a whole group, but it also feedback and make the church a better place as a whole. <laughs> It really does make the church a better place as a whole. Um, Like I said before, you know, individuals living with autism or ADHD, they have so much to contribute. And we are not tapping into the gifts that the Holy Spirit has blessed them with because, you know, some of the way our services are organized, it doesn't, it's not feasible for families to remain. If, If music is really loud, Um, If we don't consider, you know, flashing lights or other types of sensory things. Um, I mean, there are a lot of things to think of, um, but there are resources out there to help churches and to help individuals kind of open their minds to what church can be like when everybody is included. And the the big picture that I'm kind of seeing from our time together lead me to kind of a a question I wanted to ask because my journey of growth and becoming uh, hopefully a chaplain and all the things echoes yours in that it came from outside the church and then it speaks in, right? You Mm -hmm. have your your training from other institutions that were non-Adventist. You have your son. I went to non-Adventist universities. So with growth and um, personal development, I'm wondering, where's the line between working in a church that doesn't have these things you're pouring into, but also realizing when is it time to move on to a different place? Mm-hmm. Like That's kind of the question I've been wrestling with. You mean like, a different um, job or like a different denomination? What Either. Like, at what point do we, you know, we keep bringing things into the church. You're bringing all these amazing um, special needs in. Mm-hmm. At what point do you say enough is enough? I need to go somewhere else where my energy is reciprocated, you know? I think, I mean, I think that's a personal question that everybody wrestles with on different levels. I mean, for some people, it's just not a healthy place for them to work and they need to get out ASAP. For others, it could be the understanding that it takes a long time to change culture in a congregation or a workplace. Um, and so if I'd like to see things take place, whatever, in a couple of years and it's not happened, am I going to be like, okay, I'm out of here. 
let me go find somewhere else because a different location doesn't always necessarily mean um, an open culture that's willing to do different things or what have you. Um, I think there is great value in appreciating and celebrating um, what we have in our churches, but also knowing when to push and say, we need to also consider the things that we're missing. And that's really difficult. Um, and it also has these layers of nuance because sometimes we're unable to leave based on maybe we have challenges with our family or financial obligations. And other times we leave, even though it's a great place because we have challenges or family obligations. And so I think it's nuanced. There are a lot of different things to consider. Um, I mean, we didn't leave Ontario because we were like, oh, nobody likes our ideas or anything like that. Um, we felt that the Lord wanted us to, to you know, come back to pastoral ministry um, and to be able to, to, to grow our family in a space where we could, you know, be around a community, like a church community, because we had been at the conference office for six years, it was hard to put down roots. Um, so that's the way I would answer or approach that question. I think it's really different for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And there seems to be, you know, like the cycle that we've talked about that you're trying to break of diversifying leadership while also diversifying our ability as a church mm -hmm. and standing in between that, you know, could you've mentioned some of the uh, challenges as being a female pastor. That's, that's a lot of work. That's, that's <laughs> I, a lot. <laughs> to be honest with you, I don't usually step in the ring when it comes to um, discussions on women in ministry. I feel like when people want to really learn about how women can be in ministry, um, they don't come at you in a combative way. And I find that every time someone has tried to talk to me about, you know, how how I have the right or to be a, a pastor, then I know I'm like, you're not trying to learn. You just want to fight with me. And so I don't engage in that. That's not what someone else can do that, but it's just not for me. Yeah. So as we, you know, we could wrap up some of our thoughts here. I was wondering, um, where, where would you like things to go? What's we've talked about history. We've talked about your present work. Where's some of the, the hopefulness, right? We, we always have to acknowledge in these conversations that there is the act of living Holy Spirit. We wouldn't, mm -hmm. we, I don't want us to walk away thinking that this is all about Pastor Dr. Liz. So with the prayer, with the promises, that the spirit brings, what are some of your hopes or future thinking on, no, this is where I would like things to go, or here's a benchmark that I would consider successful. Like what's mm -hmm. your envisionment? I would love to see the time when um, young women in ministry isn't a surprise and people are not like, Oh really? That's what you're doing. Um, I would love to see our seminaries full of women 
And I would love to see our churches um, do the work to grow a ministry for neurodiverse individuals, because it does take a lot of work. No lies. I understand it's not easy, but like we need to get on this. And so I would love to see um, more churches being really intentional. When I had started, so the research out of the like over 180 congregations in Ontario, not one had a formal ministry for individuals living with autism. And there is very little Adventist um, research or literature on individuals living with autism or other neurodiverse um, diagnoses. Like none. It's like we need to get on that. And so I would love to see more. I don't have a number, but I would just love to see more. One more. One more. Just one. One by one. Thanks again for listening to this episode of our podcast. As we end, I'd like to acknowledge that these conversations are recorded on the ancestral and unceded territory of the Stolo Nation. With a big special thanks to our executive producer, Alexander Carpenter, our editor, Bryce Hallock, and to our creative team. We have Brittany May with logo design and Jared Jameson on audio. Also, a big shout out to our Spectrum friends over in New York City for their continued support of this program. Thanks.